Welcome to this BAFTA Q&A for the TV drama series quiz. My name's Hannah Patterson. So if you could join me in welcoming our guests. First of all, we have the writer and executive producer, James Graham, and we have actor Sean Clifford, actor Matthew McFadden, and actor Michael Sheen. So James, if we could start off with you, please. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the origins of this story? I know it started as a play for theatre and how you became involved with it. Uh, yeah, it did. It started as a play at the Chichester Festival Theatre in 2007. Um, and it actually started with a book. Um, well, actually, you know, it started nearly 20 years ago with a real life event uh, that I'm sure many people uh, remember uh, this extraordinary uh, thing that happened to some quite ordinary people. Um, uh, and I remember watching that uh, evolving the media and that, that trial and being utterly obsessed by it like everybody else and then put it in the back of my mind for tw nearly two decades. And then a book uh, was published called Bad Show uh, by Bob Woffington and James Plaskett that kind of re-interrogated the whole story uh, and for the first time brought a lot of the evidence um, in the Ingram's favour to, to light and some new evidence that, that uh, questions whether or not the narrative, the perceived narrative of their, of their guilt uh, is entirely correct or whether they were tra treated um, as fairly as they might have been by, by the criminal justice system and by the press. So I just got really, um, I was really excited by the idea of, uh, well, one, returning to a, a, a show that I absolutely adored. I unapologetically adored Who Wants to Be a Millionaire growing up. Um, um, and I suppose in a funny kind of way, without sounding too pretentious, it, um, at the time I started writing, it, I, everybody then and now, obviously still, was ang um, anxious over the nature of truth and post-truth and alternative realities and, and um, alternative facts. And it felt like a sort of mischievous, fun way to maybe explore the threat to objective reality through uh, a story about a quiz show where there are correct and incorrect answers. And so that it was, it was that issue of truth that really drew you to the story? The story drew me to the story, um, and in and of itself, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, I think it's a really. I, I suppose I also really like looked, putting institutions on stage and screen, and television as an institution, um, and how it impacts our life and impacts the public discourse. Felt 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 new and felt fresh. Um, I think also it, there is so much more to this story than most. I think people are aware, are aware of. As soon as I discovered, as people would have seen in the episode last night, mm -hmm. the syndicate. Um, of obsessed quiz fans who hacked uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Um, that just felt joyous to me as, a, as an example of English eccentricity. I sort of, I think I pitched it to ITV as uh, Ocean's Eleven, but with encyclopedias instead of guns. And the idea of these, this extraordinary shadowy group of well-meaning but slightly um, fixated quiz show fans, it, I, I didn't know what it meant, but it felt like it meant something. It felt like it said something about uh, human human beings' capacity to suddenly tumble down a rabbit hole of obsession and speak, I think, a little bit to British eccentricity. Did you get to interview any of them for the project? The, well, uh, for the syndicate, yeah, we did. We met a few of them. Um, and actually, the weird thing about this whole development process, the joy, actually, of being a writer covering something that um, is in the very recent past, is it can sort of catch up to you. So some of the real-life characters came to see the play version in the West End, and they revealed new things to us that then impacted on the television show. And actually it was during the course of filming um, the TV show that um, 
we discovered more about uh, Paddy Spooner's uh, operation. An extraordinary story that I won't spoil in episode three, but the creator of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, Paul Smith, he, he saw the play and helped us a little bit. And he, his, his intrigue in this story um, and his own certainties about this story uh, started to waver slightly. And he went entirely independent of us. He went on his own journey to re-explore um, what happened in the past. And he, he met up with some of the syndicate. He had, like, offered, offered them um, a free pass to say whatever they want without, uh, without being incriminated. He just needed to know how successfully they had penetrated his TV show. And Paddy Spooner met up with him and uh, after a while eventually told him the extent to which he was successful and how many people he put in that chair. And that we discovered the many millions um, that they had taken from the, from the prize show and he was as shocked as the rest of us. So it's just one of those glorious examples that writing about the show and writing about the story actually impacts on the story that you're telling. Um, and uh, Matthew, maybe coming to you next, did you, when you were approached about, about performing in this, did you remember the story very much? Uh, not really, not really a little bit. Um, no, so it wasn't, it, uh, not really, but I remember the, I, rem I do remember the, the feeling of the time, I think it was the beginning of, I remember the show being enormous and I remember watching the show every night. Um, it was a certain period of my life, I was at, I was in London. I wasn't. I've done a lot of touring um, with the theatre company, and I was at home. And I remember a big period. And it was the same. I've sort of maybe I've conflated it in my head, but I remember Pop Idol and Big Brother, and maybe they're slightly different times. But it was that sort of feeling of reality TV, which this sort of slotted into. So yeah, but I don't remember the Ingrams very much. And when you started reading the scripts, what was it that really drew you to the character of Charles? Um, I found a very, I, I don't know. I think from an, just from an actor's point of view, I just really, <laughs> really, it's such a beautifully written thing. And it was such an interesting story and particularly British and eccentric. And I just, um, and it was very different to what I'd been doing at the time. And it's, you know, I just thought, oh, goody, goody. And I heard about all the people who were going to be in it. And I thought, goody, goody. You know, sometimes it's as simple as that. And it's interesting because I, I, I read uh, you talking about the, uh, the differences between whether, how to portray his, their, his potential innocence or his potential guilt mm. uh, in terms of the various takes and how you would do some different kinds of takes to make sure that you sort of had that covered. Yeah, that was sort of, you know, we discuss when, you know, especially sometimes before with Sean and I or Sean and Michael and I in the stuff in the studio, we would sort of dial up the innocence a little bit or dial it down a little bit or make it a little, little make them look a little more culpable or whatever. I think so S Stephen would have sort of options later on about where to pitch it because you never know how it's going to turn out. Um, but apart from that, I just sort of played him straight down the line really as written. And Sean, if you, if you could come in here to talk a little bit about your reactions when you first read the script and the character of, of Diana. Um, well, I really remember the story. I remember them. I, um, I wasn't as obsessed with it uh, maybe as James, but I, I definitely remember it. James and I are the same age, so maybe we were probably um, surrounded by the same kind of pop culture references. Um, but I definitely remember them, and I remembered it just being this open and shut case there was no question and so when I started reading the script 
which at that time was it wasn't split into three episodes yet um i was immediately gripped and and fascinated and it suddenly all comes flooding back to you and i think in the first episode um last night there's this a lot of friends that i spoke to afterwards were just saying how much they enjoyed seeing those those um I don't know, those people popping up at those award ceremonies and things and being reminded of that moment in time because it was very specific. And uh, yeah, but I just, I found it fascinating and I um, was particularly um, just warmed by how James had captured Diana because she was portrayed as this kind of Lady Macbeth character. And I think what's so special about these scripts is uh, both Charles and Diana have been humanized in a way that they were never um, portrayed by, by the press um, at the time. Um, you know, they were villainized and um, persecuted by the press really. So, um, so that was kind of amazing to just, to just have a little peek into that world and have an opportunity to explore that. Yeah. And how easy did you find it to kind of get under the skin of her? Because she's quite a conundrum as a character, because in a way she's really the, she's really the person that's forwarding the action throughout the whole piece. Well, she's, yeah, she's the quiz, quiz nerd and, and, and the one who wants Charles to go on the show. Um, yeah, she is a kind of driving force, but I don't think it, I don't think she was as calculating as a, uh, as she was kind of portrayed. Um, sorry, what was your question? That's got out of my head. Yeah, just to do just to do with how to get because you the way you portray her is so multi-layered, and like you say, she was really kind of vilified in the press, and this sort of Lady Macbeth, the power behind the throne character, who's pushing him forward, which is not at all what you do because you really get the really exciting thing is how exuberant and excited you are about the whole quiz process, which is lovely to watch because it feels like there are moments where you are sort of, you know, the moments where you talk about the fact that you followed him around the world and you sort of did his part of living and now you've kind of got your own, you're, you're excited about your own yeah, life. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know, I just, I just thought that was very believable that we all have our own interests and there wasn't this kind of dark intent behind it. So it was actually, in terms of footage that we had, the, the best resource for me was this Fiona Bruce documentary, which came out a year after um, their trial. And it, um, it's, it's only half an hour and it's just footage of, of her and the family at home. And, and of course they're still on camera, so there must be some kind of awareness of, you know, putting on an act, I don't know. But I just found that um, the most helpful kind of, um, thing to watch and I often watched it without sound just to observe her I don't know her physicality and to just get to the heart of her and I don't know I just I immediately saw a human being on that and 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 I dismissed anything that was written about her I didn't go looking into um anything that was written about her in the press or anything like that so um and I think you know James spent so much time uh with them and so much care in developing those those characters in the script that actually it was very easy to sort of use that as our material too and 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 stay true to the integrity of what what James had written because he really I think um, having met them very briefly I think he managed to capture 
their spirit in our in our script um, really beautifully. So it was easy, honestly, just to play play the truth of that. Um, and Michael, coming to you, playing Chris Tarrant, you you have a history of playing lots of real people. What were the kind of particular challenges about this? Because it's quite interesting. We're talking about often those projects that you've been a part of. You've been playing the main character again, who's been driving the narrative forward. And with this, you're, you're more of a support. Yeah, although of course, because it's one part of the challenge of playing a real person is the audience expectation. And, you know, you have to kind of embrace that. Um, and so it doesn't matter if you're playing two lines of someone or every scene in, in the piece, people still bring that, well, there's nothing like him or whatever, you know, that kind of expectation comes. So you've still got to put as much work in. It doesn't matter whether you're playing a, you know, a few scenes or not. Um, so one of the challenges with, with playing Chris Tarrant, I suppose, was that we don't see as much of him when he's not doing Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. You know, I mean, that's the main thrust of what you see. Um, so that was a challenge, partly, that you, you know, often when I've played real-life characters, you get to play them, you know, doing stuff that, that's, that people are not familiar with, and that's quite useful when you play them. Um, and it helps the audience kind of accept you, I think, as the character. Whereas um, seeing so much of him doing Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, I had to really, really try and get that right. And he's really good at it. <laughs> um, uh, so that was kind of a, a, a challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, he's also someone who is very distinctive in lots of ways. So trying to make sure that you're not caricaturing in any way. You know, part of playing a real person is you do have to look for certain things that you kind of hang on to. There are usually, you know, certain personality qualities that maybe the writer has decided to lean on a bit more than others in order to tell this story as opposed to a different kind of story. And so your character you know, has a, fu a, a function within that narrative and you have to kind of locate that. It's not a documentary. You know, I'm not, I'm not playing, it's not the documentary about the Ingrams or Tarrant or whatever. So you do have to kind of, you know, be open to that. Um, uh, but also at the same time as you're sort of trying to pick on certain things to, to play with, um, you've got to make sure that they're not caricatured and it doesn't become a, a caricature that it's still very believable. So, uh, you know, but that's the, that's the same challenge with, with any character. Uh, real life character with this it was particularly difficult in that i was doing what he does like you know if you if you're playing someone who's a real life character they tend to be very famous and they tend to be famous because they were good at what they did um and if you have to spend all your time doing what they did as opposed to them at home that's hard because they're really good at doing what they did. <laughs> um, so I had to really, really watch Tarrant over and over and over and over and over again in that particular, in the two episodes with, with Charles um, and try and get below what was going on on the surface in order for there to be a subtext going on, you know, in order for there to be a drama um, as opposed to just a slavish representation of an episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And does it change when you're playing somebody who is themselves performing? Yes, I think, I mean, when I think about all the real life characters I played, there is a performative aspect to all of them, whether they're performers or not. There's a performative aspect to Blair or to Brian Clough or, uh, you know, to David Frost. I mean, David Frost was a performer, I suppose, but they're all, it's all about, um, well, certainly the characters I've played anyway. I think a common theme with them all is that there is a kind of surface 
uh, ease and, uh, well, maybe not Kenneth Williams, but a, a surface sort of um, performance going on. There's a, there's a definite kind of uh, performative aspect to them and that there's something else going on underneath usually. You know, and, I mean, that's, I think uh, all of us as actors will, will, you know, say that that's what you're drawn to. You want to see a character with lots of things going on at the same time. And on that note, Matthew, if you could talk a little bit about the differences, which obviously we haven't come to yet because they're in the second episode, but the moments where you start to perform because you're actually on set as the character. Oh, you mean Charles, Charles turning up on... Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was sort of wonderful because I... Because I they built this extraordinary set in Wimbledon Studios. So there was, was no leap of the imagination for me to sort of be led in by Michael looking horrifyingly like Chris Tarrant. And my heart was banging away because it was really nervous. You know, there was no, it wasn't an imaginative leap at all. It was really, you know, certainly for the first morning that we were shooting that show. It was fantastic. And then you, and then of course, you know, we were there for a week and it, you know, you get used to it. But it's really lovely remembering that sort of adrenaline and, you know, because it's terrifying. And they had all the lighting cues and the music and, you know, it was, it was really theatrical and scary. So yeah, it was great. It really helps the performance. Oh, to, yeah, totally, yeah. Was that the same for you, Sean? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you've got a full lighting and sound rig. It's, it's doing it all for you. And that music was designed to get under your skin and it works. Um, the heartbeat that is what it's called, this music that plays under a, a question. That was the best one, but yeah, it was very, although I also found that quite challenging because I was very separate from the guys. So they were, um, you know, in the center of the stage doing their thing. And um, yeah, so a lot, you know, I was very isolated from them, which is exactly how Diana would have felt, I'm sure, um, completely out of, it was all out of her hands. And that's why I think, I mean, you can, you, the, the episode of, or the two episodes of, of Charles's performance never actually aired, although people often think that they've seen them. Um, when you can watch um, footage of them on YouTube and uh, yeah, I mean, Diana's just in absolute torment the, the entire time. So it was, it was fun to recreate that. And yeah, very, very easy to just, just feel the tension because yeah, it was all doing it all for us. The other extraordinary thing about having this amazing recreation of the set was that also being able to experience what the sort of physical proximity of our main characters were. That, you know, where I was sitting as Chris Tarrant, I could, you know, there was Tequin, who was supposed to be, you know, who was supposedly the coughing person. Um, so I, I, could, I knew how, because it was an exact recreation, so I knew how close Tequin was. So the, the audacity, if, if this, you know, um, heist was, did actually happen, the audacity for Tequin to be coughing, right, facing Tarrant. I mean, he was behind Charles, but right in front of Tarrant and really close. Um, and it's extraordinary that, you know, that Chris Tarrant said that he wasn't aware of what was going on during the show, but to not be aware when he was that close does, I, 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 it throws up lots of interesting possibilities that. Um, 
James, maybe you could talk a bit about that, about form and the theatricality that was very much there in the play. Uh, I saw both versions of the play and you have, because you have audience participation in the play. And what were the challenges of, of shifting that into a TV medium? Um, yeah, I sometimes find it really hard. I'm, I, I, I can see why sometimes if you have written a, a story in a different model in a different format, it's actually quite tempting to hand it over to somebody else to come at it fresh. Um, because there's a certain, you almost have to walk back through the woods of your thinking and go back to the original source of the story when you're adapting it. But I don't, I don't know why I found this one particularly um, joyous to do. Um, as you say, the play version was very, um, it's an obvious thing to say, very theatrical, um, but it, um, it, it did what I think all good theatre should do. It, it had to be live to exist. Um, and uh, so, so we created that sense of event in the theatre by by playing games. We gave the audience a, um, it's about quizzing, so we gave the audience a, a, a quiz at the beginning of the of the show. And they had to write down their team name, and then we got away a prize at the interval. Uh, we got people up on stage to play bullseye, I'm making it sound terrible. I think it was okay. Um, um, and of course, you can't have uh, hundreds of people gathered in a space like a theatre doing a play about who wants to be a millionaire without asking the audience. So we gave them a keypad um, to vote on the, the most important 50-50 of the, of the story, which is, are they innocent or are they guilty? And the, every night the audience voted uh, at the interval after, they, after we presented the case with the prosecution. And they always, every single night they said guilty as, as expected. And then at the end of the play, when we presented the case for the defense, uh, every single evening show they converted to, to innocent. Um, except, uh, we've told this story before, but except for some reason during matinee shows, we've got no idea, but they just wouldn't have it. They just didn't do it. They, they said guilty both times. So there's a thesis to be written on that. Um, um, but in a way, much like the TV show, I think that the, the show itself declared itself as a show that was about uh, manipulation and was in itself an act of manipulation. So, so we, didn't, we, I, we weren't saying either way what the audience should think, just uh, explored methods of manipulation. Um, but to answer your question, sorry, about um, adaptation, um, I, I mean, the strength of narrative, uh, of television, I think, is always narrative and, and plot. And so I just turned it into a more linear structure and just tried to let the story breathe. Um, and there is so much plot in this story. It felt like a joy to write. You just go from moment to moment to moment and you structure it like it's a crime, like it's a heist movie. Uh, it sounded from something you said, Sean, earlier. It sounded like it, it wasn't originally three parts. What did it? Did you? Um, well, James probably speak to that more than me. But it was it was originally written as one thing, I think. And we went back and forth actually because we did. Yeah, we just didn't know what would the right format to tell the the story and whether the experience for the audience would be more satisfying in one sitting, um, in two sittings. Uh, obviously, as we all know, there are other forces that impact upon that decision in terms of uh, what broadcasters, international broadcasters need to, to, to fit in. I think what we knew and what ITV very generously allowed us to commit to at the very beginning was, um, you know, it's, it's light entertainment about light entertainment and we hoped to make some event television about event television and there's a lovely meta aspect to the programming which is that ITV allowed us to strip it on consecutive nights to replicate the feeling of watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. So I think all that, all that kind of stuff is fun. Um, I'm going to just start delving into some of our audience questions here. Um, we have a question from Kate Baskefield, who's asking about, well, she's talking about the during the opening credits 
it states that the events and characters have been altered for dramatic purposes. So when working with real events and real people, what do you decide to change and why, James? Oh God, yeah. I mean, I, I find, you know, those, those cards are important, obviously. Um, they are reductive and simplistic and an audience is, I think, sophisticated enough to know that, of course, uh, Sean is not Diana. She's an actress playing Diana and therefore something by definition has, is conceited and contrived. Um, you know, this story lasted for three years. And actually, no, I think from 1998 to 2003 we cover, so that's, that's five years in length. The drama is not five years long. Uh, so, of course, you've, you've cut and you've added and you've conflated six meetings into one meeting. Um, and, um, but, I, you know, I, I think we, we, the more mischievous card we put up at the beginning was a quote that I've always loved, which is the Picasso quote. Uh, I'm gonna absolutely mess this up. Uh, art is not truth, art is a lie that helps us realize truth. Um, and I think to declare that to an audience and, and say, look, we, are, we of course had to make decisions um, about how we tell this story, but it's not a lie. It's, it's, it's the essence of truth uh, told in an artful form. I'm trying to think of some examples for you of the things we may have changed. Oh, so we conflated characters. Um, uh, there are two. Ingram brothers, uh, Adrian and Marcus. Um, um, we conflated that into one character. Um, we've conflated, conflated uh, ITV executives into, into less, less parts, so it's more manageable for an audience. I think those kinds of choices, again, you maintain the essence of the truth of the story, but you also have to make a good show. There's no point in making something completely accurate, but it is, but it's unwatchable. Did the you... Curse, oh, sorry, I was just going to say the curse of playing real people is that um, you become so obsessive about what they actually said and what they actually did. And then you come to film the scene and you go, hang on, this is different. This is not what they said. This is not, James, what on earth is going on? <laughs> and James will say, oh, isn't it? As, and, as if like, you know, they've consciously chosen to do it differently. And it's, and he, you know, he hasn't, he's just changed it a little bit or whatever to, to make it work. But it becomes so obsessive for the actors, doesn't it? But I, but I'm, I'm laughing because you do, you get, you get sort of, um, you get hung up in it. And we all had these iPads on set for little moments, you know, that we were shooting in the show. And we sort of, I, you know, it's very hard not to get hung up on exactly how they, and actually it's, you know, it's okay. It's just, it's an impression of a, of something that happened, you know. Um, but yeah. yeah. If there was like one word different from the question <laughs> that Tarrant asked Charles, I'd be just apoplectic. For God's sake, James, what are we doing here? Are we taking this seriously or not? I didn't really. Sean? I do actually think there were, sorry, sorry, Anna. I was going to say, I do actually <laughs> think there were some occasions when, uh, in the middle of all that, we would actually decide I would not be able to remember why I changed it, and we would go back to the original. But there, and, um, but there were also examples when I'm sure there was a, a clever artistic choice for, for why I chose it. Sean, was there anything you wanted to say about that question? Oh, just the same. You get you get obsessed with it, and and I did. I I mean, I was watching footage of Diana every single day on set, repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. I watched her over and over and over, and especially the stuff in the studio. That is really hard because we had we well, again, um, editing is a big theme in the show, and so. I've only seen what, um, you know, the channel edited into uh, the version of events. So, but all of those things, I would also take certain 
um, physical traits and conflate them or steal bits from things that we weren't showing and use them because I felt that they captured something of her or, you know, supported the narrative or were dramatic or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think um, probably to my detriment initially, I was, I was very obsessed with it, but in the end you've, you've just got to play James's script and, and actually that was so, so solid and so um, perfectly formed in its structure that just um, allowing um, myself to kind of just relax into that was, was so much more helpful. Um, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of need to watch it and absorb it, like watch it a million times and then completely let it go because just by osmosis, I think you, you know, we absorb things from observing them over and over. So hopefully we captured the essence of things by doing that and, and still made it dramatic. <laughs> the thing that really, I was really, uh, that really got me through was a very faithful reproduction of um, Charles's beautiful rugby, short sleeved rugby top, pink and blue. That was terribly important for me. That's all I want to say about that. <laughs> Anna, can yeah. I just, uh, there's a couple of things that Shana's mentioned that I, I just want to pull together. Mm -hmm. she, earlier on, she mentioned that, um, you know, that a lot of people think that they saw the episodes go out, which they didn't because they were never broadcast. And then you also just mentioned, Sean, the idea of editing and how, um, you know, the, the ITV edited it the way. So I just want to pull those two things together because I, I think it might help people a little bit, which is, um, yeah, so the, the episodes, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, James, the episodes with Charles never got broadcast. Um, and, but what did go out was a documentary that ITV put together about it. So the people who think that they saw the episodes are probably, like myself, I think, probably misremembering that and actually remembering the documentary. Now, the documentary was doctored by ITV to raise the volume of the coughing. So when people say that they've gone on YouTube to watch the actual episodes, they're not watching the actual episodes, they're watching what ITV did in order to make it clearer what they felt was going on. But I think a lot of people feel that they've seen the actual episodes and that it was that obvious. And it clearly wasn't. So I wonder, James, how much you think the public perception of the absolute guilt of the Ingrams is based on misremembering that they're, or mixing up, that they thought they saw the episodes, but actually they saw uh, the ITV version of it where they brought the coughing up very loud so that everyone could hear it. Yeah, I think that's inevitably, uh, inevitably true and memory is a bit of a theme of the, of, the, of the show and in episode three, coming to you tomorrow night, um, that, that forms a lot of the, the defence actually because how, 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 um, how, how in the present we alter through confirmation bias things that we think we've seen in the past in order to make, in order to make sense of them. Um, and Michael's right. I mean, the uh, the, um, the the argument that the prosecution made for uh, constructing this uh, this tape tape G, uh, which forms the majority of the documentary and what the clip that people will see of, the, of Charles on YouTube, they isolated um, the coughs uh, to replicate. They argued the experience of what it might have been like if uh, if Charles Ingram was listening out for somebody he knew was there and knew was coughing. That's the argument they make, and they're sincere in believing that that was the right thing to do. Um, but of course, it just it, it, it creates um, an important and necessary question about about um, there is no there is no un, 
unedited version of this event, as Sean was saying, it's, you know, they have, they, to an extent, they have made sympathy. How do you show the crime that happens? You have to make edits and choices. You have to cut to people as they do the crime. You think they didn't then cut back. Um, but what it presents is a, is a problem because you are, you are creating a narrative by definition. Um, and it's very hard for anybody, anybody to access an unfiltered version of this story. So I agree with Michael. Um, people, I absolutely remembered before I remembered that I didn't. We uh, sat at home with my friends at university watching the major performance and thinking it was suspicious. That can't be true. I made that up. I made that up to make sense of something that is really hard to understand. And that's very interesting in light of the, um, the moment where you bring in 9-11. Well, you didn't bring in 9-11, but you choose to, to reference, obviously, 9-11 because of what was happening at the time. And it's something that you're... It, well, it's really there throughout all of your work, this, this obsession, I think, with truth, which you, you talked about, and post-truth, where we are now, how we sort of um, kind of live in a bubble of our own echo chamber of what we're being told or not. Um, is, and is that, is that what you sort of really feel that you want people to be left with the most in the show, to really sort of think about those issues? Yeah, well, it's, um, it's uh, nothing, nothing exists in, in a vacuum, and, and uh, it, uh, even stories that are unconnected with the events of the world are affected by them and how they're reported and how they're framed. Um, but the most extraordinary aspect of the story, it's something we show in tonight's episode, um, the Major's performance on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was on the 10th of um, September 2001, um, so the day that they were, so the day that the producers got gathered together to discuss whether or not he cheated um, was was 9/11, and the meeting that they were having in ITV was interrupted by the requirement to go to new, put live footage of what was happening in New York. Um, obviously, there's no comparison with the scale of these two events, but um, I do think it it uh, it raises some. I think I think something was was happening at this at this time with our with our with our media with our, with the with the frame through which we saw the world. There was the emergence of Google um, and social media around 2003, um, of news becoming um, more confidently uh, 24 hour news cycles in Britain and entertainment and news sort of starting to blur. It was the age of, as, as Matthew said, of uh, the emergence of reality television that would eventually go on to become um, this format we now call constructed reality. Uh, and from that constructed reality genre uh, came, came Donald Trump as a fictitious character in The Apprentice, and that fictitious type character goes on to become the President of the United States. Um, it's, I think it's, it's all connected in, in, in some way, but um, of course, really what you want to do with this story is not overstate that and, and just stick to, the, to what I think is a very human, very relatable story about some ordinary people in an extraordinary circumstance. Um, but it's even with it's a genre I, I grew up loving. I think you can do a comedy drama um, that embraces quite, quite confidently a, a mischievous, cheeky tone. And I think what Stephen Frears has done so charmingly is, is exactly that. Um, but that, that doesn't mean it, a simmering under that enjoyment can't be uh, things that try and make sense of the world we're living in today. It's interesting. So one of the questions uh, that somebody's asked is, why do you think that the press villainise them so much? They were perfect villains. They, they came out of central casting for villains for the British tabloids. And for us, uh, I was complicit in that mob mentality. I wanted to see, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted them to have done it. They are, um, a, they, are they, they present as quite privileged. They're actually not particularly wealthy at all. Um, they, they were renting that lovely house that we found. Um, um, uh, but they are, you know, they're white, middle class, well-spoken. He's a 
bumbling army major. She's she on the surface to people maybe represented an ambitious wife. And it's the it's the it's the um, it's the thing that you can't do in Britain. It's you can't cheat. This is the country of fairness. We queue and we have rules on the cricket field. And if then these people came into my favourite show and they tried to take what wasn't theirs, I think it stimulates something very visceral in us that was perfect for the tabloids and perfect for us and our own complicity as a, as a nation for for wanting to see them fall. Um. We have a question from somebody who's asking each of you what, what your kind of favourite moments were uh, during, during filming. Michael, do you want to start? Um, well, I, an overall favourite moment was getting to work with Stephen Frears again, uh, who I hadn't uh, worked with since The Queen, since we filmed The Queen, um, but who, uh, who I've known since then, obviously, and um, who has been, had played such a huge part in my life, really now, um, and uh, so getting to to be with him again was wonderful. Um, I, I really do think he's you know one of the best directors of all time. And mentioned, James mentioned the idea of tone. There is no one better at judging the right tone for a story than Stephen, I think, and because you can really get it wrong. You know, when I read these scripts. Um, on the page, it works so brilliant. I mean, I just like shot through them. And I, I, you know, and you love that feeling as an actor, you read it and you go, well, this works on the page. This works amazingly. But to actually realize that on, on film, on, on TV, um, takes someone who really understands the tone, every choice. And Stephen is just brilliant at that. So working with Stephen, working with Matthew again, um, having done Frost Nixon with him, he is genuinely one of the most enjoyable people to spend time around, whether you're working or not. It's just wonderful. Seeing him with those teeth in was great. Um, and being able to walk onto the set of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was thrilling. That was an absolutely thrilling moment. The first time going on and then the and the lights and the whole well bells and whistles thing was just just brilliant i absolutely love that so it would probably be that just being there on the set getting to i love doing quizzes i love when at christmas time when you play games with the family i want to be the the quiz master because i love the control so being able to be the quiz master with that toy of a set to play with and getting to be chris tarrant doing it was that was just perfect that was lovely sean I mean, same, you can't get away from that first day on, on that set. So, yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect. So that, that was amazing. And it's kind of the biggest production I've ever worked on. So that was something really incredible for me. But also, actually, the, all our, our family stuff, when um, Matthew and I were sent off to a little village, um, we just uh, just had the loveliest time honestly and um it was so nice and that was right towards the end of the shoot and um and the weather was beautiful and it was just it was it was so wonderful i mean i honestly the whole um shoot was really really enjoyable for me and i i love working with steven as well he's um he's a very funny man and um and so um, delicate with how he um, directs his actors and I really I just had I had such a great time on the whole thing but yeah I would say in particular our our little time in the in the country was the was the best moment for me yeah Matthew did I just see you with a pair of teeth yeah you did um, I would echo all that my um, friends are saying 
Um, these are the teeth. These actually are the teeth. I've got two. I've got another set here. Put they're them little, in. Huh? Shall I put them in? Uh, but Michael, no wig, Michael? <laughs> no, originally they wanted me to have teeth as well. And we had some teeth fitted. <laughs> and the thought of me and Matthew sitting opposite each other, uh, that with both of us, I mean, I literally, it would have been a dental bridge too far. Yeah. Ooh. Good. But, but I, it is, I it's think the wig that does all the work for me. That, it's, it's not my performance, it's the wig. It's a brilliant one. And I'm Diana's twin, so I got that for free. <laughs> but I think I, the joy of, well, it's always, I've always felt like this really, but more and more the, the joy of doing, you know, the joy of being a working actor is working, but also it's the, it's the doing of it. It's the collective experience with, you know, and I've, I've known Michael since I was at RADA and, and it was thrilling to sit opposite him. Uh, you know, we worked together once maybe 10 years before I think in Frost Nixon and so that was just it was just a real thrill and I was a huge fan of Sean so that was a thrill um Stephen Frears obviously is just legendary beautiful man and, and so it's it's the if it turns out well then that's wonderful you know I was a big fan of James Gray the whole thing was just a very very exciting thing so being on set with all those people and you know it's just it's just wonderful that's the it's the, it's the it's the doing it together which is the thing and hopefully people will like it, you know. I think it's good. And, and we've got a question about, um, were there parts that were kind of harder than you expected they were going to be? Because sometimes you don't really realise those moments until you're actually on set and something's happening and you kind of thought that was going to be fine. And then it became, actually maybe James, let's start with you in terms of the writing. Was there something that unexpectedly you just, was really hard to get over? No, I think what we, knew, I, we always knew was difficult to construct the, um, Actually, no, I didn't think it was going to be difficult at first. The, mo the moment which we're going to show tonight, which is the actual replication of Charles's performance in the chair with, uh, with uh, Michael and Sean um, in the audience, I thought that would be um, easy to write because I almost just thought I'd put a link in the script to the YouTube clip and, and then see you, see you back in 20 minutes. Um, but of course, you can't do that. You've got to construct what the narrative through that, what people are doing and what's happening um, internally for these people who are allegedly committing this extraordinary crime under, the, under spotlights and cameras and microphones and a live audience. So, so that it was one of the hardest things to write, even though all the, all the material is already there. And then in the studio, which everyone has said was such a thrill to, to, to walk into, um, we had that, that for two weeks. So that's, that's a playground that you can keep adding layer upon layer upon layer. And I think Stephen and I both collectively realised after about three days that this was going to be a different process to anything I'd ever done before on, on set because how you how you layer up uh, the if 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 they uh, in the version we're showing tonight the guilt of them doing it um in a in a thriller way who is doing what to who from what angle um what does that sweat mean what does that cough mean what does that glance mean the architecture of that was quite hard to assemble and we had to keep going back over some of the material to keep doing it again and again and again to layer that layer that up and the, the, the um, you know, what we were asking the actors to do was impossibly unfair because um, I guess I'm, I'm only assuming I don't want to speak for these guys, but of course you need to play, you need to play something with absolute clarity. And what we were both, what we we're often asking um, Sean, Matthew and uh, Michael Gibson, who plays the third member of the conspiracy, uh, alleged conspiracy, Tequan Wittick, we we're asking them to maintain at the same time the possibility that they are both guilty and that they are both innocent. 
So sometimes you're facing these ludicrous, ludicrous conversations. I remember being with Michael Gibson and Stephen saying, we need to cough now, but could it be a cough that might feel guilty at first, but then when you think about it, it seems innocent. And then when you look <laughs> back, it definitely looks innocent. But then the week after when people think about it, it's totally guilty. And he's going, <laughs> and just you know, attempting it. And in the end, ultimately, uh, I don't know how they did it. And I would let, I'll let um, Sean does a very famous cough that was caught on, on camera from Diana. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I would love to know from her like what, uh, what choice she made in the end about how to do that, where she's both innocent and guilty at the same time. Well, I, I think we just did a ton of those, and I did those in isolation, so I don't think there wasn't a scene even being played out in front of me. I just had a camera there and had to just do a, a bunch of versions of it. So that was definitely my most challenging moments. And there's a lot of listening that Diana does in this, even in the courtroom. Um, you know, we were sat there for two weeks and... Um, for the, uh, you know, Matthew and I do at some point end up on the stand, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of listening is, is always quite challenging, but the, yeah, the cough, I, I don't even remember because we did so many versions and actually, I don't know where I saw a clip of it uh, in the last couple of days. And I was like, cause, cause I think she actually in the, I think she coughs twice in that question but they only we we consolidated it as one so i wasn't sure which one to do <laughs> and that was one of the more f like physical moments i really did want to recreate as it was but um yeah and you're also in danger actually i think with recreating stuff like that is often what humans do would read too big actually if I did exactly what she did it would be enormous I mean she actually leans forward I'd have gone out of frame on the camera because it's so you know what we really do as humans it can often read as a bit too much on a on a on a tv in a in a show but um so I don't know is the answer to you James am I call that the question about anything that was kind of unexpectedly difficult that you hadn't anticipated would be um there's something about Tarrant because he's so tall his his phys he physically dominates that set and when you know when when he does the when he says who's the fastest finger person who's won and they walk up and there's a shot there's always a shot of the two of them standing there with his arm around the other person and then they walk down to the seat and so there's always something about how physically big he was and Matthew is possibly the tallest man in the world I don't know if people know this but Matthew is, is very large um in, in a beautiful sexy way and uh and when we met up, do you remember when, when we were doing that day where I was having the makeup tests and that kind of stuff? And, and I'd forgotten, because I hadn't seen Matthew for 10 years. And, um, uh, well, I'd seen him, but, you know, we hadn't worked together for a long time. And he walked in, and I'd had this on my mind about Taron being so tall. And Matthew walked in, and I was literally talking to him about that. And I'd forgotten. And so I had to have lifts in my shoes. Cause I said, and I think, I think Stephen said, oh, oh don't worry, we'll, we'll just, you know, the way we shoot it, it'll be fine. But I was like, nope, I have to be physically, I can't, he can't be towering over me. And, uh, and I just thought that was really important. And that was difficult because then I had to walk around with these ridiculous shoes with massive lifts in the bottom of them. Um, so that was challenging, that was difficult, yeah. And Matthew, was that your biggest challenge? 
Um, I quite enjoyed sort of snuggling into Michael's armpit, into his warm embrace. I loved it. I don't know what was. Um, I, I'm probably. I just. I loved every minute of it. Really. Um, what was difficult? It was quite difficult being spat at. There's a scene. Um, that's a spoiler, really, but it's in the in the next episode. But yeah, that was. It was technically quite difficult and also quite horrible. Um, because you're sort of going along having a jolly time, but they were, you know, <clears throat> that really happened. And so, yeah, that sort of, um, yeah, that was quite eye-opening. It was quite hard to do. Um, what else? No, did you, just... Did you fight, Matthew, when we were doing the actual, it's sort of like what James was saying in a way, that in some ways, the easiest thing to do is the total recreation of the, ask, me asking you the questions, you doing the answers. Mm. We've seen it, we've watched that footage over and over again. But in mm. some ways, that was very challenging because how do you, how do, the, the danger is that you just recreate it as opposed to telling the story of it, which I think is what James was saying. And that was, that was quite difficult, wasn't it? Not to just be focusing on, oh, he does it like this, he says it like this, but to actually act it, to be in the moment and acting it. Really. Exactly. And I think what we, uh, probably what we ended, I mean, it, I, mean I, 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 I think it was more of, a, more of a challenge for you because everybody knows exactly what Chris Tarrant looks like and sounds like and moves and all the rest of it but i think for both you know when you're when you are playing a real person you're sort of like a magpie and you take little bits and pieces just as a flavor of it and then you know so you'll there there, there were little pieces of charles from the show which i wanted to do faithfully and then it went into the into the script or something you know something that was a little bit different or you know um so it's not it's not sort of beating yourself up about doing every little every little bit, you know, yeah. exactly as it happened. Um, yeah. You're sort of taking pieces and using them, um, and it's sort of how it makes you feel, really. You know, I think you know when you, as an actor, you know when it feels right and you're you're telling the story in the right way, and you know when you're just doing an impersonation. You you're trying to technically do it. So, um, but it's tricky. It is tricky. And thank you for acknowledging publicly that it is always harder for me. Thanks, thanks, Matthew. It's always harder for you. Yeah. yeah <laughs> um, uh, a question about the real characters and uh, have they seen the series and what are their reactions? Yes, we wanted to. Um, I wanted everybody who wanted to see it in advance for them to be allowed to see that it's their lives, and I think they have a right to do that. And I'm always a very keen believer uh, of trying to take people with you on a, on a project and to do that as early as possible. Um, and I, I, yeah, I'm really, um, this will sound boastful. I mean, it as a, as a compliment to everybody involved in the company and the production. Um, but it's, you, you have a very polarized issue here. The producers still believe that they absolutely are guilty and the Ingrams still absolutely maintain their innocence. And it always felt like it was gonna be a huge challenge to create a television drama where they both um, liked it or didn't like it in equal measure. Uh, but I'm really pleased to say that they both, they both sides, the producers, um, Paul Smith and uh, the ITB figures and members of the Ingram family, we came to watch a screening of it. And they both, I think, from what they said to me, um, feel like they've been fairly treated and are grateful for being allowed to put their opinion across. And we've been checking in on everybody all week. I've, I've been emailing the family to make sure they're okay in particular, because I think Understandably, they're not desirous or seeking out the spotlight for this. Um, so we wanted to make sure that, that they were okay. Um, yeah, well, so of course, it's also it's a funny one as well because you don't, I, I never want people um, 
you know, I've done plays about politicians. I did a play last year by Rupert Murdoch. And um, it's a funny thing because you don't want them to think, you, you don't want them to hate it, but you don't want them to like it too much because then you've not done your job. And it's a funny old balance to strike. Um, I think this one was slightly easier because I, I, I personally really like everybody in this story. And uh, I generally don't think it's, there are any bad guys, weirdly. I mean, I know some people will think the Englands are bad guys because they did this thing. Um, I think it's a rare to write to be able to write and make a crime drama with no bodies and with no um, no huge violence. Uh, it's a, it's cheating on a quiz show, and I think it's it's easier to present people as being more endearing and affectionate in that situation. Great, thank you. Um, and uh, we are shortly to run out of time, so just a question because quite a lot of people have been asking about. Um, oh, this is a particularly nice one. All four of you are shining examples of the UK's creative industries. Um, and people are interested how this quarantine situation has been affecting your work. I mean, obviously, uh, your work is being shown at the moment over these these evenings this week, which is brilliant. But how, how are you being affected personally by, by what's happening at the moment? James? Um, well, I think like everybody, uh, you the, the, the main focus from everybody is, is on people being safe and um, and and do it and making sure that, that you know there's nothing more important than human life so any any uh, stresses or concerns i have about being stuck at home are, are pale into insignificance uh, in terms of the creative process i find it i i you know i get all the time people mess friends and family messaging me saying as a writer god you must be getting loads done aren't you and i'm like no i feel horrible i feel so ashamed it's just the world is so distracting at the moment and i think the desire to connect with people is very strong um including on things like this, which is why these are so glorious and thank you for doing it. Um, it's, it's a very weird thing to share a television drama when you're stuck in isolation on your own um, to the world, but it's, uh, it's also a great privilege as well. So I'm, um, I'm more worried about the future and for our industry and for particularly theatre, which I think will suffer greatly. But um, uh, for the time being, uh, yes, I'm really happy we have a television show on. Michael? Uh, yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I think before being a sort of creative person, you're sort of a member of the community and, um, and to be aware of um, how differently this crisis affects different people, different groups within the community and having the privilege to have a kind of a platform and a voice, um, being able to kind of speak out a little bit and speak, voice people's concerns over... Uh, social media and, and that kind of stuff. And I've been asked to go on things and talk about stuff and blah, blah, blah. So that's come first and foremost um, for me. Um, and then on the creative side, I, I mean, I, it is extraordinary to have this come out in the middle of all this. <laughs> it's, it's an extraordinary experience. Um, uh, um, and in terms of tr being creative, um, I, I, uh, I get half ideas for things all the time and then think, well, with all this time, now I should, like James was saying, now I should be able to sit down and write all those scripts and do all those things. And uh, no, I've done nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, so I'm really glad that this is on at the moment because it sort of makes me feel like I'm still a creative person, even though I'm not doing anything. And Sean? Yeah, just, uh, just, just taking it a day at a time. And yeah, very, feel really really lucky to be to be in something and to have something really glorious to shout about and um and to be able to um you know i i feel like 
providing something that people can connect over is just really an amazing privilege and so that's that's amazing i think the more sort of conversations we can spark as a as an online community i feel like social media is really coming into its own in this in this moment in time and so i'm really enjoying that feeling of connection and community um yeah i'm not really thinking about work or just echoing everything that everyone has said i just um i think we're all facing completely different challenges we've got to look after people that are more vulnerable than us and i think um yeah he who knows it's completely open-ended we've no idea where we'll end up or what it means for our industry everything that i had lined up is postponed and might not even happen i don't know so um we've just got to see the most important thing is that you know we we get we get through it so we'll see matthew yes i would echo the com echo everyone's comments i'm i'm i feel very lucky i'm it's, i'm enjoying being with the family it's you know it's a an enforced pause on life it's very strange and despite you know that we were talking before this before the um panel about despite the oddness and the sort of sadness and the difficulties i'm it's very nice to be you know i'm very lucky um, we have a garden the weather's been nice it's been a sort of strange hiatus um so yeah, and as far as work goes, it's you know we're all in the same boat. We're just sort of waiting to see what happens. I'm due to go and do another series of the show in the states called Succession, and that's just on pause. So there've been so. a lot of questions about Succession as well. Right. But yeah. Sadly, we haven't had time to do them all. No, we did a family design um, with me. That's what we did. That's the most creative thing we've done um, during this lockdown as a family come dine with me, which I lost, infuriatingly. Anyway. There we are. I haven't read any novels or anything. Well, on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to draw this to a close, but that's been fantastic. Thank you very much. And Welcome. I hope that everybody enjoys the second and third episode, which I'm sure they will. Thank you very much to Michael, to Sean, yeah. Matthew and to James. Thanks for joining us. And remember, you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.